0: turn our, uh, in our Bibles to the very same scripture that we read last week for our communion meditation in James 2. In our discussion about faith and works, we're going to be reading James 2, 14 through 26 in just a few moments. We start today with a lesson from Soren Kierkegaard. To refresh memories about him, Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher and theologian who lived in the 1800s. He was born into a strict Lutheran home, and his early years were ones of physical suffering and emotional melancholy. He studied for 10 years to become a pastor, but then he was most taken with philosophy, choosing that path that led him to become an influential voice in the 20th century. He took on the establishment of many worlds, the literary world, the philosophical world, and the church world. He said that the greatest enemy of the faith that Jesus founded was that Christians had become too cultured, too respectable. He said it ceased to be an adventure, and it was tragically too easy. He said there was no longer any risk or pain, no real victory through God's living presence, saying that he thought that the church was just playing at Christianity. So, there's a parable that's attributed to him that highlights some of this thinking. There was a magical place called Duckland that was inhabited solely by ducks. And on Sunday morning, all the ducks came faithfully to church, waddling in the doors and sitting in the pews where they all comfortably sat. They sang songs from their duck hymnals and gave to underprivileged ducks during the offering. And when the duck preacher got up to proclaim the word, he was very dynamic. He opened the duck Bible and preached, Ducks, God has given you wings, and with these wings you can fly! No walls can confine you. No fences can hold you. You have wings and you can fly like birds. And they all shouted, amen, we can fly. And with that, the pastor closed his duck Bible and dismissed his congregation of ducks. Then they all waddled back home, saying what a great duck sermon they had heard. Now, this story is funny, but it's also scathing, (laughs) because we hear the critique of those who go to church each week, but nothing about their lives change. They are content to stay the same. In this section of the letter that we are reading, James is addressing the divide between what Christians say they believe and what they actually do in their practice in real life, that there's a gap between their professed faith and their daily practice. And James here is saying that to be viable, to be alive, faith has to be lived out together with actions as its outward expression. Without works, without deeds, he said, working together, faith will die. So here are the word of the Lord from James 2, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but do not have works, can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, oh, go in peace, keep warm, eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. O Lord, may we listen to your spirit. This is your word given for your people, for your church, for all time. And so, God, we humble ourselves before you. Amen. Last week, we talked about what it means to have a faith that is dead. We talked about why this can happen and most importantly, how Jesus can make us alive in him. That no matter what happens to make our faith wither or die, Jesus will help us to live again. One of the reasons why this part of James's letter is important is because of how the church has read it in light of Paul's teaching. Throughout church history, some have read this passage to mean that James is saying that we are saved by our good works. And this is a direct contradiction to what Paul teaches in various places, especially Ephesians, where he is clear that we are saved only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So if James is teaching that we are saved by doing good works, that's a different theology than what Paul says, and we have a problem. Now, many, many theologians and many minds better than mine have grappled with this issue, and I encourage you, if you want to go deeper, there's many, many things that you can read. But I want to offer one explanation Uh, for us to see how James isn't in direct contradiction to Paul in these verses. One way of looking at it is that Paul is focusing on what happens before conversion, and James focuses on what happens after salvation. We know that Paul is fighting against a tradition that promoted the law as part of pleasing God. So he has to highlight how we are justified alone by faith in Christ and his work on the cross. James does not deny this. In fact, he assumes the centrality of faith in Christ to those uh, to whom he is speaking because he is talking to the church. But he is stressing how imperative works are in the life of someone who follows Christ. For James, good works always follow, always come as a result of faith. And we know that Paul talks about how works prove the character of our faith. He said we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, the debate about which is more important, faith or works, has caused divides among believers, and that continues today, in an all-or-nothing kind of manner. There are some people in the church who degrade social justice as not necessary because faith is all we need. Salvation is enough. There are others who say that helping is the work of Jesus, but we don't really have a need for evangelism. Faith is a necessary component to knowing God, and there are some, including John Wesley, who acted on faith through his good works until he could say that he was truly saved by the Lord. In our lives, we have to have both faith and And works and in our free methodist tradition we emphasize both of them as core to our beliefs and our values we sit in the middle of both extremes believing that we are only saved through faith in jesus but that that faith moves us out into the neighborhoods to minister to those who need his love we work in his name offering friendship and salvation to those that we serve So in this passage, we want to think about how James gives two different ways of living out the faith toward others and towards God. And as James writes, he gives a negative and a positive example of both. But underlying all of this is how a faith in Christ with no deeds attached to it will not save, does no good, and is dead. So, amen, more strong words from James. Here we go. We look first at what it means to live out faith in God as it pertains to others, because this is where James begins in 15 and 16. He is carrying on with the idea of how mercy triumphs over judgment. And he's saying, if you don't help someone who has obvious needs, who is standing in front of you, where is your faith? So we begin in the negative with the illustration he gave. When we read this illustration, it might be familiar in some way to us. Either because we have been a person who was in great need and somebody did not help us. Or because we have been the person who has told another person, no, thank you, I can't help you. The New Living Translation reminds us that the verse in 16 is a dismissal. Uh, They render it, goodbye and have a great day. We would call this being tone deaf to the needs of others. Someone does not have enough clothes or food, but they're told to keep warm and well fed. How insensitive is that? If a person does not have enough, how can they get enough in that moment of asking you to provide? It's so humiliating to be in that position, to be told in trite language, to go along and God bless you. The church constantly needs to be reminded about the warning of not being merciful. And we have been talking about this for the last few weeks. As James's words echo throughout the scriptures, it's not enough he says, to have sympathy, to offer nice words when suffering is staring at you in the face. Words are good. They are core to our practice in prayer and song, confession, counsel, and teaching. It is right that encouraging words should be part of what is offered to the hurting person. However, James says, if nice words are all we give... And what that says about us as the giver is that we have no faith. Words have to be given in tandem with real help. Paul writes to Titus about people like this when he says, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him. And then we think, "Mm, is this a theological issue? Is it a laziness issue? Is it a judgmental issue? In the story of the Good Samaritan, one person was too busy to stop and help the person by the side of the road who was bleeding. Another person was a little too hateful. The third one stopped. The most improbable person, the Samaritan, who was not seen in the community of the righteous as having the correct form of faith. But they are the ones that stopped. James is telling us, without mercy, faith will not save us. Then he gives a positive illustration of, in, of Rahab in verse 25, in contrast to the board picture that he gives of the nameless person who does nothing for the struggling one. Rahab is held up as one who was saved because of her good works. In the book of Joshua, two Israelite spies are sent to look over the land that God is giving them to enter, especially Jericho. And the spies are in Rahab's house when the king sends a message to her and says, Hey, I know the spies are in your house. So you need to send them out because we're going to take care of them. And Rahab says, Spies? What spies? I don't have spies. They were here, but they left. And as she hides them on her roof under a bunch of bushels of something she tells the people who are sent to pick them up, yeah, go outside the city walls. I think they went somewhere that way. And when all was safe, she tells the Israelite spies that she knows that the Lord is with them and that she believes in his greatness, that he is the God of heaven and earth. And she asks them to keep she and her family safe when the conquest occurs. They swear an oath to her, and they live up to their word. You see, Rahab had scant evidence of who God was. She had only heard about him from the Israelites that she had heard. She said, I heard about the Red Sea and Egypt. God's greatness goes before him. And because of this little bit of faith, she helped his people who were in need. She made it possible for others to be delivered as well. And James sets her up as an example of a person who trusted God enough to do this courageous act. And he's saying, here's a believer who will not help one of their own. And here is an outsider who is willing to risk their life so that God's will would be accomplished. Rahab wasn't simply trying to save herself. She said, my heart melted when I heard about the truth of God. And in that moment, she made a choice that resonated with what she believed to be true. And her act of faith puts her on Jesus' family tree as the mother of Boaz. What is the relationship you have with your faith and your compassion? When you see a need, what determines if you will act on it? John tells us to love in word and deed. Does your profession of faith match how you live your faith out? James is telling us in various ways it's not an option to do nothing. If there's something that God is asking you to do for him, say yes. And ask him how he will meet you in that exercise of your faith and see what he does. The second way James calls us to live out our faith is toward God. We mostly think about good works as doing something for other people, but here James is framing faith as a good work. Obedience is what is necessary for peace with God and how we impact his kingdom. In verse 18, James employs a literary device called diatribe. He writes as if he's having an argument with an imaginary person. And this imaginary person opines that it's fine for someone to have faith and someone else to have works as if this were a collective activity and it all gets uh, washed out in the end. And in response to this wrong idea, James quotes the Shema telling them, You believe that God is one. Hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is good, he says. And yet, then he delivers a blow. Even the demons believe that, he says. And the demons shudder. The word shudder here is very interesting. It means that they bristle up like a cat. The hairs on uh, their, the back of their whatever stand up as they are struck with extreme fear because they know they are in danger of the Lord Most High. Now, this negative example James gives about the demons is interesting because we know from uh, Jesus' experience with them that atheism doesn't really exist with demons, and that's something that we should all think about. The demons... Proclaim that they know he is God, that they know that he is most high. They know that he's the Messiah. One time he even tells them, stop talking. They beg for mercy. They have emotions about God. In Acts, they follow the disciples proclaiming, these people are from God. God has sent them. Perhaps you have experience with demons in your life. I have friends who are missionaries in different places around the world. And demons are still very much alive and real. James's shocking example serves to remind listeners how one can believe in God, but not put their full faith in him by really accepting his love. His point about the demons is that they believe in the Lord, but they stay the same. They're not interested in having their sin forgiven or having God change them. They're terrified of God, make no mistake. But they have no peace. This made me think about a familiar lesson my pastor from home taught us when we were little. He put a chair in the middle of the room, and he said, I'm going to walk around this chair, and let's talk about this chair. It has four legs. I believe this chair exists. I think that this is a strong chair. It's sturdy. It's made of wood. I believe that this chair is good, and it would hold me. But it's not until I sit in it that I put my faith in it. You see, the demons don't exercise their faith and what they believe. And James is telling the church, don't be like the demons. He calls out his opponent. He calls them a senseless person, saying that, The demons have a faith that is barren. It reminds me of an empty house, maybe where there's nothing on the walls or there's nothing in there. Maybe where there's an open house where you go and you, you know, look at what's going on when a house is being sold. And you know that it looks good, but there's no life in there. No one lives there, but it looks good. A barren faith is a faith that has mere knowledge of God, but there's no life there. In contrast to how the demons believe, James gives us a positive illustration of the incredible faith of Abraham, who believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was the friend of God. And James tells the story of how Abraham uh, offered his son Isaac on the altar, the son that he and Sarah had waited for for years, the son of promise, where Abraham was supposed to have descendants as numerous as the stars. And God says, Go and sacrifice this son to me. And so Abraham goes up a mountain with the intention of doing what God asked. And with this act, he cements his relationship, showing that God is the most important. I love verse 22. You see that faith was active along with Abraham's works, and faith was brought to completion by the works. One has to exist with the other. They are cooperative. They make a cooperative whole. Abraham's faith led him to do good works, which is obedience. And then God brought maturity to Abraham's faith because of it. There are good deeds we do for others, and there are deeds of faith to show the Lord how much we trust him. Abraham's trust in him was part of his good work. He held nothing back. Jesus says, we are his friends if we do what he commands. Righteousness and action go together. So this morning, are you fully surrendered to the Lord? Do you actively seek God for who he is and what he would have you do? The times in my life where God has called me to surrender, to obey, have not been very easy times but God will not let us go. He will keep telling us that he wants us to obey. And when I finally said yes, there were seasons of unparalleled joy after that. And the things that I was most afraid of, the things that were stopping me from saying yes, never materialized. And God met me, enabling me to soar. Which brings us back to the ducks. We don't want to be Christians who come to church every Sunday but are not impacted by God's word. He has made us for so much more than simply getting through this life. He has made us to help those around us with his love. He has made us to have a lasting relationship with him and to follow him closely. He has made us to bring change to structures and to systems and to... The unjust ways of the world. He has made us to make a great impact for his kingdom, like Abraham and Rahab. Don't leave today without examining your life in uh, in light of God's word through James. If God is calling you to make a change, do something before you leave to show that you have heard him. Come and pray at the altar. Write something down that you take with you, that you say, I am committing to this, Lord. I hear you grab somebody and say, will you pray with me about this thing that the Lord is dealing with my heart about? Our lives are made up of daily choices, and we want to live out our commitment to have a working faith in God. Let us pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.